This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back for a wonderful installment of The Power of the Parsha. I want to thank you all for coming. For those of you who are here live with us on Zoom, thank you for being live with us on Zoom, and thank you for leaving your camera on if you leave your camera on. If you don't, that's also okay. We still love you. Thank you for those who are going to watch this later on Torah Anytime or any other platform. It is now finally, I think I've, I think I've gotten back onto Apple Podcasts because they had, they, had, they had closed me down for a while. Somebody complained that the title of one of my classes was similar to a different podcast. There's a podcast out there called Choose Your Own, Your Own Adventure, and I did a class in Rosh Hashanah. And it was titled Rosh Hashanah, Choose Your Own Adventure, so they complained and Apple shut me down for a while. But I think Apple has allowed me back on the platform. However, I'm definitely available on Spotify and Stitcher and any other place you get your podcasts. Okay. I also want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for enabling all that I do, especially that which I do involving learning with you. So a big thank you to them. And a thank you to the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's got... So much mind-blowingly awesome Torah content, Jewish content that you can learn, that you can download, that you can grow from, that you can be inspired by. All right, and now we go to our Parsha, Parsha's Yisro, the story of Jethro. So let's give, this week's Parsha is going to be a big one, because in this week's Parsha we have an event that is singular in all of history. It's the story of God coming down on Mount Sinai and speaking to the Jewish people and giving them the Ten Commandments, okay? And that is the only time in recorded human history that there is a situation where a God speaks to a mass of people, okay? Throughout all of human history, God comes to like one dude at a time. You know, like JC comes as God spoke to me and, and actually Saul, this, uh, this Jewish kid named Saul, uh, later calls himself Paul. He's really the founder of modern Christianity. He says that J.C. came to him and told him. And you've got, you've got all these people throughout history. You know, uh, Islam, the, the second largest religion in the world. So Christianity started really by one Jew named Saul, who has a vision that J.C. came to him, and he changes his name to Paul of Tarsus. And you've got Islam started by one man, a guy named Muhammad, who says that the angel Gabriel came to him and talked to him. The only time in all of human history that there is a mass revelation, even on record, is in this week's Torah portion, the Torah portion of Parsha's Yisro. But it starts with an interesting story, which is interestingly out of order. It starts with the story of Yisro, Jethro, coming. Now, who is Jethro, you may be asking? He is Moshe's father-in-law. He comes, there's actually a dispute amongst the sages whether he came prior to or after the giving of the Torah, the Matan Torah. However, he definitely comes to uh, the, the Jewish people, and Moshe uh, gives him great honor and accolade, right? Moshe goes out to greet him, and all the elders go out to greet him, and they f- have a whole feast with him, and it's a beautiful story, okay? Now, the story of Yisro is actually two different parts. Part A is that he came and joined the Jewish people in the desert, and they gave him great honor. That's part A. Part B is he makes a recommendation to um, he makes a recommendation to Moshe about how they should run their judicial system. Now, interestingly, according to those who are of the opinion that Yisro came before Matan Torah, before the giving of the Torah, 
these two stories are actually months and months apart. And yet, they go verse to verse. So let's, let's see it inside. <clears throat> Here we go. Parshas Yisro. And Yisro, the Kohen of Midian, the priest of Midian, he hears what happens to the Jewish people. They were taken out of Egypt. And Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe, takes Zipporah, the wife of Moshe, who Moshe had sent away. Because when Moshe was going back into Egypt, Moshe sent away his wife and his two children. He said, I'm about to walk into, I'm going back to a holocaust. I'm going back to a place where millions of Jews are being enslaved and beaten and murdered and killed. Why would I want two more Jews, three more Jews to come with me? You guys stay back here, and when things are clear, I'll give you the all-clear symbol, and you'll come back. So that's exactly what happens, right? Moshe Rabbeinu ends up going back to Egypt alone. He rescues the Jewish people, and as soon as his father-in-law hears about what happens to the Jewish people, he comes back bringing Moshe's wife and his two children. Okay, and he comes out, and Yisro comes to the desert, and Moshe says, I am your son. Uh, he sends a message to Moshe, I'm your father-in-law, I'm coming to get you. And Moshe goes out to greet his father-in-law, and all the elders follow him out, and he bows before his father-in-law, and he kisses his father-in-law, and they ask each other of peace, and they come back to the tent, and Moshe tells over to his father-in-law all the things that happened while they were gone, and you know Yisro hears about it, and Yisro gives a blessing, and, and he knows his God is so clearly greater than all the other gods, and because Yisro had been a person who had you know, gone to visit and had, had sampled, so to speak. Yisro, you know, I, I love traveling. And uh, when I was younger, when I used to travel, I used to buy shot glasses wherever I went because I thought it was cool to buy shot glasses. But then I realized shot glasses are really, really just a bad way to chronicle where you've been because, like, what are you going to do with all those shot glasses? First of all, you're not going to drink 24 shot glasses at your table. You don't even have that many guests. There are some people who put them up on a shelf, but that looks weird, and it very easily could fall and break because shot glasses are generally made out of glass. So what ends up happening is you have drawers full of shot glasses from all over the world. Big deal. But I want to remember the places that I've been. So what I started doing about maybe six years, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I started buying magnets instead. So I've got an entire wall of my refrigerator covered in magnets. But then later on in my life, I was like, wait a second. There's all these places that I've been to that I want to be able to look at and remember fondly, right? But I didn't get, in those days, I got shot glasses. I didn't get magnets in those days. So what am I going to do? The answer is, ladies and gentlemen, there's something called eBay.com. You go on eBay.com and you can get magnets from wherever you want in the world. So I think back of all the beautiful places that I've been to. I think back of the Mykonos in one of the Greek islands. And I think back of Barcelona the Spanish city of Barcelona. I think back of Rome, and I just go back and I buy all the magnets. And now I don't have the shot glasses anymore. I have the magnets. Now, <laughs> so, he is, he, Yisro used to have magnets on his refrigerator. What were the magnets on Yisro's refrigerator? All the religions that he had sampled, right? I try to put magnets on my refrigerator of all the places that I've been to. Yisro used to put magnets of all the religions that he had sampled. So Yisro, literally, the Talmud tells us, the Medrash tells us, I'm sorry, that Yisro went around, he tried Buddhism, he tried Hinduism, he tried Zoroastrianism, he tried so many different religions, and he was the one who came to believe that there's this monotheistic religion called Judaism, which is true. So when Yisro says, by the way, your God is greater than all the gods out there, he's, he's a real authority, right? He says it over here, he says, Ata yadati ki gadol Hashem elokim, Elohim, I know that God is greater than all the other gods, because he returns 
to the Egyptians exactly the travesties they did to the Jewish people. But when he says, I know that your God is better than all the gods, he is a proper authority on the matter because he literally went, if you went into his house and you checked out his refrigerator, he would have magnets from dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of religions that he had sampled and tried. Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, so that is the story. And they sit down to eat. It says it was the next. So it says, uh, but they took, they, they made an ola, they made an offering, uzvachim and sacrifices, and Aaron and all the elders of the Jewish people came to eat bread with Moshe's father-in-law in front of God. Very good. That is Rishon. Okay, that's the first aliyah of the Torah. Then we go to Shani. Shani says, and it was the next day, and Moses was uh, sitting to judge the people, and the people were sitting on Moshe from the morning until the evening. Now hold on a second. When did this take place? It just says the next day. But if you look in Rashi, he says, what next day is it referring to? He's actually referring to the next day after Yom Kippur, months and months and months later after the giving of the Torah. And the Medrash makes the following calculation. The day after the Torah was given, Moshe went up to Shemayim. The day after he went up to Shemayim, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He came down on the 17th of Tammuz and saw the Jewish people dancing around the golden calf. He broke the luchos. And then he went back up to heaven on the very next day to plea on behalf of the Jewish people so they not be annihilated by God who watched his people commit adultery on him at the very mountaintop. Where he, they were still at Sinai, by the way. The Jews danced around the golden calf at Mount Sinai. That's like committing adultery on God with a foreign God while we're still in the wedding hall. So Moshe goes right back up and he says, let me talk to God, let me make sure you're not killed. He spends 40 days on the mountain. He comes back the day before, Rosh Chodesh Elul, and Hashem says, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't want to hang out with you. The very next day, Moshe was like, wait, 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 God, no, 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 we're not doing this. God's like, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a lawyer, he'll take care of you. I'm going to send an angel before you. I'll send you the money, I'll give you an expense account, you'll be taken care of, I just don't want to spend time with you. Moshe says, wait, no, 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 that's not the deal we want. He goes back up on the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. And finally, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, what does Hashem say? Salachti kidvarecha, I have forgiven you. And Moshe comes down on Yom Kippur, which is the very first time where we hear this amazing pronouncement from God that He's going to forgive us for the most egregious of errors, the most egregious of sins, the golden calf. So if you've been keeping count, Moshe did not have a single day. He did not have a single complete day from the time the Torah was given all the way until Yom Kippur. So we have this verse describing how Yisro comes to visit the Jewish people and they make a big celebration and they have a big meal. And it was the next day and he watches the people being judged by Moshe. The next day is referring to months and months and months later. And we have this whole story about how Yisro watches the people standing around Moshe for, for court cases and to be adjudicated. And he says to them, what are you doing? Right, so now let's read the next part. So he says to him, what are you doing? Why are you sitting by yourself and the whole people are standing above you from morning to evening waiting to get judged? And Moshe says, what do you, what do you mean? That they're coming to get judged. I'm the one who's got the knowledge from God and people are coming to seek that knowledge. And if a person has any kind of dispute or matter or fight or argument, they come to me and I make a judgment. So Moshe says, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro, says to him, Lo tov it's not good what you're doing. You're going to be worn out. The Jewish people are going to be worn out. 
Naval Tibal Gamata you're going to be worn out. The Jewish people are going to be worn out. It's too much for you to do. Let me give you a recommendation. Listen to my idea. Let me give you a recommendation. Why don't you set up a court system of lower courts and higher courts? And you'll have all kinds of different levels of courts. You're going to have people who are going to be in charge of 10,000 people. You're going to have people who are going to be in charge of, sorry, uh, people in charge of 1,000 people, people in charge of, of, of 100 people, people in charge of 50 people, people in charge of 10 people. You're going to have very granular court system. As a matter of fact, the actual calculation is going to be like 76,000 or something like that. There'll be a lot, a lot, a lot of judges. And you should do that. And Moshe goes and checks with God, and God's like, I give you the thumbs up, and it's great. And because of that, by the way, Yisro got a name called Yeser, extra, because he has an extra parsha on the Torah that was given because of him, because of what he did. Now the question is, first of all, why is the Torah mentioning this story if it really happened after the giving of the Torah? Again, Yisro, according to most opinions, comes to the desert before the Torah is given. He leaves after the Torah is given. Between him coming, the Torah is given, and months later he has this whole conversation with Moshe about how they should set up the proper judicial system. Why is that proper judicial system written in the Torah out of order? We have a concept, which means the Torah is not necessarily written in order. But why? Why does the Torah put this whole story about setting up the judicial system based on Yisro's recommendation before the giving of the Torah, if in actuality the Torah was given first? So why is it written out of order? That's question numero uno, which if you don't speak Spanish, it's question number one. Okay, question number two. Like, we make it sound like it's like this brilliant idea. Like, whoa, who would have thought of the idea we should have a lot of different courts, higher courts and lower courts? How about everybody? Everybody would have thought of this idea. That's number one. And number two, the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai. And in the Torah, there's a mitzvah called Shoftim Veshotrim Titen Lecha that you shall surely give yourself um, judges and policemen in all your gates. Excuse me. So, what exactly is Yisro adding over here? The Torah had this recommendation anyway. And furthermore, if the Torah's recommendation. <clears throat> was not such a granular judicial system. Remember that there were 600,000 men in the Jewish community at the time. Based on Yisro's recommendation, 78,600 of them would be employed as judges. Okay? 78,600 of them would have some sort of judicial responsibility. Right? It almost sounds like the American government. Like there's 350 million Americans, and I think 74 million of them work for the government in some capacity or else. And they're all off on every legal holiday and every the one day before and one day after and so on and so forth. So what is the deal with this whole, if this is not God's plan, like how, how did it work out? So let's try to understand this. And the idea I want to share with you today is from a Sefer, a book called Darash David, which is written by an incredible human being named Rabbi David Hofstetter. Rabbi David Hofstetter is a, 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 I believe he's a billionaire. He's definitely an extraordinarily successful real estate investor in Canada and Toronto. But this man, his investing is his side job. His real job is learning and spreading Torah. And he started an organization called Deershu, which has people learning and getting tested, rigorous tests to make sure you really know what you're studying and make sure you really keep track of it. And they do these massive programs all across the world of studying Torah and learning it and growing from it. 
And once in a while, like, I've actually seen um, pictures of these, well, they'll fill up a stadium with people who have learned and studied and got tested on tractates of Talmud. I've seen, um, I've seen a, a test one time where they, were, where they were testing people, I believe, on the entire Talmud. Can you imagine they're being tested on, 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 on thousands of blot of Gemara, 2,711 um, folios of Gemara, which each one is complicated. So it's an incredible organization. It does a lot, a lot of good in the world. And here we go. What does Rabbi David Hofstetter say about this idea? He says something fascinating. Moshe Rabbeinu is pretty high and holy. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that after the Jewish people sinned by the golden calf, they lost their spiritual crowns, whatever that means. But Moses did not lose it because he was up on the heaven, on the mountain, when the Jews were serving the golden calf. And because of that, Moshe had a radiance that was so strong. Moshe literally shone like the sun. And people couldn't even look at him. He had to wear a mask, okay? Moshe had to wear a mask on his face to cover the incredible light that was coming out of his... He was just, it was glowing, okay? Remember, the, the, the mask is not necessarily to protect you. It's to protect the other people, right? The other people couldn't handle the incredible, incredible shine coming off of Moses' face. It was blinding them. So Moshe had to wear a mask. Now imagine... If you and I got into a fight, okay? You and I got into a fight. What did we get into a fight about? We got to the supermarket, and there was only one bundle of rhubarb left on the shelves. You know, there's a supply chain problem right now. You know, I don't know if you guys know this. There's a supply chain problem. And we both want to make our famous rhubarb applesauce. And we both get there, and we both reach... For the bundle of rhubarb. <laughs> and we both grab it at the same time. And I say, that's my rhubarb. And you say, uh-uh-uh. This is my rhubarb. Okay? And we start arguing over it. Now, I don't know, I don't know how to tell this to you, but we are not going to be able to... Um, we're not going to be able to go to <laughs> Moshe and say to him, we're fighting over our rhubarb. Because he'll be like, a what? A What? What are you talking about? What is this rhubarb that you are discussing? (laughs) Are you kidding me? You guys are fighting over rhubarb? We're going to be very embarrassed to come to Moshe and fight. A husband and wife are going to get into a little petty fight. Which, believe it or not, husband and wives do. A husband and wife are going to get into a little petty fight. And they're going to be embarrassed to bring it to Moshe. So they're not going to bring their problems to Moshe because they're embarrassed to bring those little petty problems before such a great rabbi. So what are they going to do? Those problems are not going to get solved. And when those problems are not solved, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to get worn out. Moshe, as a leader of the Jewish people, is going to get worn out too because he's going to see his people stressing and he's not going to understand what is stressing my people. I thought I was here. I thought I could adjudicate all their cases. But yet, I don't know. There there, there seems to be unrest amongst the populace. People seem to be uncomfortable. People seem to be unhappy. And I don't know why. I wish they would come to me and discuss with me what's going on. But people are embarrassed. 
So what's going to end up happening is Moshe is going to get worn out. He's going to try to be a good leader, but he's going to realize his people are not doing well, and he won't be able to figure out why. And the people are going to get worn out because they're not going to be able to bring their problems to Moshe. Now, by the way, the Malbim, okay, one of the great commentators on the Torah, actually discusses how sometimes Moshe was not able to really fully understand the Jewish people's pettiness. There's a story later in the Torah called the Misononim. The people were complaining. It's found in Bamidbar. Okay? In Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 13. Right? The people are complaining. They don't want the money anymore. They want meat. And, and Moshe says, like, what do you want me to do? Where can I get meat from to give these people? Right? And what he was saying, explains the Malbim, is, I don't have a desire for meat. I'm perfectly fine eating God's spiritual manna. And because I can't even relate to this desire as their leader, I can't advocate for it. I can't get it. I can't do this. I don't understand. Why are these people so petty? What do they want meat for? They're eating manna. They're eating the most amazing, delicious food that tastes like anything you want. So according to the Malbim, this was a lack of Moshe's ability to understand the people and, and their low levels. So Yisro sees the Jewish people and he realizes that they are not going to be able to properly, they're not going to be able to properly connect with Moshe because he's too high. He's too high above them. So what does he do? He says, what we need is we need everyone to have their own judges at their own level. Right? The, the, the Pasuk actually says over there, the Pasuk, when in describing the mitzvah of giving people judges, it says, Shoftim v'shotrim titein lecha. You shall have judges for you in all your gates. Which means they have to be able to relate to you. Which is the same word lecha as the sages say to us, Asay lecha rav. Make for yourself a teacher. The teacher that you have, the leader that you have, the person that you go to to seek guidance from God has to be somebody who you feel can understand go understand what you're going through. If your rabbi, and I actually talked about this earlier this week, I believe at my prophet's class, my Navi class on Tuesday night, people often want to go to Rav Chaim Kanievsky about everything. Not necessarily is that appropriate. Rav Chaim Kanievsky is the, the, the greatest scholar in, in Israel. Now, you have to understand, just to understand how great Rav Chaim is. Rav Chaim was once given a ride by somebody. This goes back many years ago when stick shifts were common. And Rav Chaim Kanievsky was, he, he, was, he, he, didn't, he, wasn't, he didn't go in cars often. You know, he, was, he sat and learned for years and years and years. So this person gave him a ride. And Rav Chaim Kanievsky saw that this person was, he kept shifting back and forth with his shifter, you know, with the, with the stick shift. And it was the crazy roads, like the roads in Israel often are, the traffic and the roads. So Rav Chaim says, look, you just focus on driving, I'll mix the gas. <laughs> I'll mix the gas. I'll tell you another amazing story about Rav Chaim. And again, these are, this just shows you, by the way, how he was so removed from physical, the physical world. Rav Chaim has been living in the same tiny two-bedroom apartment, sleeping on on an almost non-bed. His bed is like this little, thin, tiny little mattress. No queen size, no California king. You know what I'm saying? He lives 
in a home with the most simple furniture. It's been there for, for, for decades. He's living in the same apartment for decades. All he cares about is learning Torah. But he, he doesn't even understand how cars work in a certain, to a certain degree. Obviously, once he needed to learn, if he, had, if he needed to learn it for a Jewish case, he would learn it. But I'll give you another example. It's a beautiful story. I love this story because it shows you how a person should look at the world. There was a very wealthy American who moved to Bnei Brak. Bnei Brak is the city where the Rav Chaim is, is, is one of the greats. Bnei Brak is a city that was built to be a city of Torah. And this person was a very, very wealthy guy. And he ended up, um, he ended up selling his business and moving to Eretz Yisrael. And he said, what do I want to do? I want to sit and learn for the rest of my life. I want to retire. I want to go to Eretz Yisrael. And I'm going to sit and learn. And that's great. What an honorable and beautiful and amazing thing to do. However, when he was in America, he liked cars. And when he moved to Israel, he was willing to give up on a lot of creature comforts. But the one creature comfort he was not ready to give up on was this big American cars. You know, you go to Israel, the cars are these little Japanese, little, uh, you know, you know, whatever, just European cars. The, the car size in Israel is not nearly as big as the car size here. And thankfully, because the gas prices in Israel like, quadruple the price of gas over here. So it's a good thing they have smaller cars. But this guy, he had, he had enough money, he had plenty of money. So every year, he would buy himself a new American car. You know, a big Buick or whatever it was. The story goes back in the old days, they had those boats. Remember? Oldsmobile, the Buicks. And he would get himself a big boat, maybe a Cadillac. And uh, he would drive it for a year, and then he would sell it, and he would go buy a new one. Now, as the years go by, and, and, and again, this guy's doing an amazing thing. He's, he, he, he retired from his business, sold his business, sat, sits and learns all day in Israel. His wife started feeling uncomfortable. She says, you know, people around here, they're not so rich. People are very poor. And you're sitting here every year. Not only are you driving this big, fancy-schmancy American car, but every year you get a new one. You're making people jealous, and it's not fair. And the, the, the husband said, what do you want from me? Like, I, I, uh, I, I gave up so much creature comforts to move here. And all I'm doing all day is sitting and learning Torah. But, so, all right, I like cars, big deal. Let, let me have my one little vice, my one little pleasure, my one little simple pleasure. So the wife and the husband went back and forth, back and forth. Finally, they agreed that he was going to go to Rav Chaim Kanievsky. So he goes to Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and he tells him the whole story. I moved here from America. I was very successful over there. I sold my business, and I moved here to sit and learn all the time. And I, I just, I like my big American car. So every year I buy a new car, and I sell my old one, and I buy a new, brand new American car every year. And my wife, she's saying that everybody here is going to be jealous of me because I'm driving this beautiful American car, and I think it's not a big deal. So Rav Chaim Kanievsky says to the man, Tell me, have you finished Shas? Have you finished the entire Talmud yet? Have you completed studying the entire Talmud? And the man says, uh, no. Did you finish half of the Talmud? No. Is there any tractate in the Talmud that I could test you on, that you know right now, that you know cold, that I could test you on? And the man says, I mean, I've I studied a bunch of different tractates, but I, I, don't, I, don't know that. I, I don't know them off the top of my head. I can't be tested on any one of the tractates of the Talmud, no. If Chaim Kanievsky looks at him and says, don't worry, nobody's jealous of you. Now the story is a beautiful story. Meaning, in Rav Chaim's world, why would anybody be jealous of you because you have a big American car? Right? 
But it also shows you that Rav Chaim is a man who was immersed in Torah study for 60, 70 years. Only later in his life was this sort of attention and the spotlight put on him, right? He's not a man who's... Meaning, it's not like he was a Rebbe for hundreds of students for all of his life, right? It wasn't like he was interacting with students his whole life. He was sitting and studying by himself, studying Torah and writing books, with maybe with study partners, but like... It wasn't like he was a Rosh Hashiva and he had hundreds and hundreds of students that he was constantly advising throughout the year on all kinds of things. He was a Torah scholar. And his Torah knowledge is incredible. But in terms of maybe sometimes understanding every kind of person, maybe he's not the best person understanding what I'm going through. Now other people would say, no, absolutely, he understood it. He, he, he touched the guy up right. He explained it. Says Rev. David Hofstetter, the idea over here is that Moshe Rabbeinu, it was just too high above all the people. And the people were not going to feel comfortable bringing him their petty issues. And even if they did bring him, he might not even be able to understand every petty issue. You know, the Jewish law is that we have to adjudicate any case that anybody brings you. I remember I was a little child and I got in a fight with somebody over one dollar. Okay? It's a long conversation. <laughs> and um, I'll just say I was in the wrong. I'm big enough now. The story happened long enough away that I could say I was wrong. Okay? But me and this other kid, I was probably, I don't know, eight years old. He was like seven. And we got into a fight about a dollar. It was mine. It was his. It was his. It was mine. Whatever it was. We went to the yeshiva that was right nearby. Tell she yeshiva, tells. And we went to the rabbis and we said, we'd like you to judge this case. And it was amazing. They actually, they convened like a bezdin. They, they brought together rabbis. There was three of them sitting there and they took it very seriously. The halacha is, you have to take the case of a dollar with the same seriousness that you take the case of a million dollars. And as a matter of fact, if somebody has a court case over a dollar and somebody else has a court case over a million dollars, we don't give preference to the person who has a court case over a million dollars. He doesn't get to go in first. So this, my buddy and I are fighting over a dollar and the rabbis, and it, it left such an impression to me. They took, they took halacha seriously. They sat down and they grilled us and they asked us all kinds of questions and all that. And in the end, they discussed it for a while and they issued a verdict. Okay? But we didn't know better. We were little kids. So we, we felt okay. We're going we're to go to the rabbis and ask them a question. But if I was a, a 19-year-old fighting with my friend over a dollar, I, I, I'm not going to bring it to the rabbis, like the, the great rabbis. I'd be embarrassed. Says Yisro to his, to his son-in-law, Moshe, Moshe, you're going to get worn out and they're going to get worn out. They're going to get worn out because they're going to be too uncomfortable to bring you their petty situations. So they're not going to bring them to you. And then they're going to keep fighting because they won't get resolution. And you're going to get worn out because you're going to see people are not okay. And you're, you're not going to understand why. What you need to do is you need to say, We need judges who will be for you. For you on your level. And you on your level. And you on your level. And for that, you need people who are not that far away from them. Who can understand them. Who can understand what they're going through. Who can relate to what they're experiencing. And that's why we need judges that will be in charge of a thousand, judges that are in charge of 
100, judges that are in charge, and so on and so forth. We need all the levels. I think the really important message that we learn from this, and he says this is why this portion was put before the giving of the Torah, right? Even though the story may have happened after the Torah was given, because it teaches you the foundation of how Torah gets transmitted. The foundation of how Torah gets transmitted is you've got to asay l'charav. You've got to make for yourself a rabbi. You've got to make for yourself a rabbi who understands you. You've got to consult with somebody who you feel comfortable with bringing your issues to. Because if your rabbi is someone who's so great who you're not going to bring your issues to, he's the wrong rabbi for you. So if you want to determine who your rabbi should be, and the Mishnah in Perikah says, Asay l'charav, make for yourself a teacher, it's got to be somebody who you feel comfortable bringing your issues to, that you feel comfortable discussing your problems with. You have to choose your Rebbe very, very, very carefully. And if your Rebbe is going to be somebody who's so high and above you that you can't be yourself around him, then he's not your Rebbe. Your Rebbe should be someone that's accessible. Many times people say, oh, my Rabbi is so-and-so. But but if your Rebbe is so-and-so and you can't get a hold of him when you have a question, then he's not appropriate to be your Rabbi. Again, there are people who say, oh, my rabbi is so-and-so. Some great rabbi in Israel. Really? Do you call him when you're not sure what to do with your children? Do you call your rabbi when you're not sure how to interact with your... You've got a child who doesn't want to go to shul with you. He's 14 years old. He doesn't want to go to shul on Shabbos morning anymore. He says, Dad, I don't want to go to shul anymore. What do you do? That's a good question. Really complicated. Can you call up your rabbi and ask him? Will he give you the time of day? If your Rebbe is Reb Chaim Kanievsky, the answer is no, you can't. So then he's not your Rebbe. He's not appropriate for you. There may be great, great rabbis who give halachic rulings that we should all follow because they're experts at halacha. And that's what they've been spending the last 70 years doing, studying halacha. But if your rabbi is somebody who's just too busy, if he doesn't have time for you, then he's not the right one for you. That's A. And B, if you don't feel comfortable discussing your real life with him, your real challenges, what's really going on in your life, in your marriage, in your private time, if you can't discuss that with him because you're way too uncomfortable because he's so great, he's not the right one for you. And there are many rabbis that, you know, before you go in to see them, you can't have your smartphone with you. Now again, I'm not here to discuss pro or con smartphones. But, and people grow beards before they go in to see them. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you can't be yourself, then, then why is that your rabbi? Yisro says the foundation of the Torah, before the Torah is given, let's be very clear, the Torah is only going to work in a context of people being able to ask questions and gain inspiration from their rabbis. And if their rabbis are too high above them, then they're not going to be able to discuss with them. It's not going to work. You will get worn out. Your people will get worn out. The way we have to have it is have many, many layers of rabbis. And of course, it's always important that every rabbi should have a rabbi. Right? So you have the leaders of 10, and the leaders of 50, and the leaders of 100, and the leaders of 1,000. There are many levels of rabbi that are out there in today's day and age. Baruch Hashem in America today. Think about how many different layers of rabbis there are. And that's not a bad system, that's a great system. Because 
certain rabbis are going to be able to just relate much better to other rabbis, to, to, to their congregants, I'm sorry. And that's the appropriate Rebbe for them. But hopefully he has a Rebbe and he's being inspired by his Rebbe. And hopefully he has a Rebbe, he's being inspired by his rabbi. And then it goes, it trickles all the way up to the great ones. Great, beautiful, that's the way it should work. So that is an idea that's very important. You've got to make sure that you have a Rebbe. And that Rebbe has to be somebody who's A, accessible to you. Because if he's dealing with too many people, he's dealing with all the Jewish people's problems, he doesn't have time for you, then he's not your rabbi. And B, he's got to be somebody who can relate to you to the point where you're comfortable bringing up your real life story with him and talking to him, yes, even about your pettinesses and the things where you mess up and the things that you're struggling with and the things that you're challenged by. Okay. That is idea number one. Idea number two. The Jewish people come to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Here's the verse that says it. So we started off with the parsha. Yisro comes to Moshe. Second part of the parsha is Yisro's recommendation to Moshe, and Moshe accepting it and doing it and setting up this proper judicial system. Next, now we have the story of the Jewish people coming to Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah. Bachodesh Hashlishi. This is chapter. Uh, 19, verse 1. Okay? In the book of Exodus. Shmos, Yudtes, Perak, Perak Yudtes, Pasuk Aleph. Ba'chodesh ha-shlishi, let's say, And on the third month of the time the Jewish people left Egypt, Bayom hazeh, on this day, Ba'um midbar Sinai. They came to the Sinai desert, to the Sinai mountain in the desert. Ba'yisu merifidim, and they traveled from Rifidim. Ba'yavo midbar Sinai, and they came to the Mount Sinai in the desert, by Yachanuba Midbar, and they camped in the desert, by Yichan Sham Yisrael and and the Jewish people encamped opposite, facing the mountain. Now, did you notice any repetition in those two verses? I hope you did. But if you didn't, I'm going to point it out to you, just because you guys are awesome and you deserve it. Here we go. Here we go. On the third day of the month, of the, on the third month of the Jewish people leaving Egypt, on that day, they came to Midbar Sinai. They left Rephidim and they came to Midbar Sinai and they camped out in the desert and they camped facing the mountain. The words, Vayavo Midbar Sinai, that is repeated twice in verse 1 and verse 2. Bo Midbar Sinai, they came to the Midbar, the desert, Sinai desert, and Vayavo Midbar Sinai, they came to the Sinai desert. What is with the repetition over here? What is going on? So, Reb Kluger one of the great rabbis of the previous century. This is a fascinating idea. They're going to come to Mount Sinai and they're about to get the Torah. You would think that perhaps the action that precipitated that would have been an action of incredible sacrifice, incredible devotion, incredible greatness. But that's not really the case. Where were they? What was the encampment they were at right before Sinai? They were in Rephidim. Now, Rephidim is one of the more notable encampments of the Jewish people in the desert because it is there that they fought with Amalek. Right? Last week's Torah portion, we read about Amalek coming and attacking Vayava Amalek Vayilachem in Yisrael Rephidim. The Amalekites came and attacked the Jewish people in Rephidim. And what gave them the ability to attack the Jewish people? What gave them the ability to attack the Jewish people was that they 
The word Rafidim, the Medrash tells us, is, so the Gemara tells us actually, the Gemara in Brachos, Daf Hey, Amud, Beis, tells us, why was it called Rafidim? The word Rafidim comes from Rafu Yadeim Min HaTorah. Their hands were weakened from the Torah study. They were not engaged in properly studying the Torah. They already started getting mitzvahs from the Torah when they went to Mara, this place, a city called Mara. Well, actually, not a city, but a place in the desert. And they were lax in their Torah study, and because of that, they got attacked by the Amalekites. Interestingly, this, the station they were in right before Mount Sinai was a station in which they were weak in their Torah study. Is that a coincidence? I think not, because there's no coincidences in the Torah. Says Reb Shlomo Kluger, we have a famous Gemara. The famous Gemara is found in Tractate Brachos, page 34b, which says, In the place where the person who repents from his mistakes stands, even the total righteous tzaddik cannot stand. Meaning that it is often through the process of breaking ourselves and falling and making mistakes and seeing the chaos that we bring to the world that we realize, OMG, oh my gosh, how could I fall so far? How could I do something so foolish? And that is our impetus for growth and challenge and we start working on ourselves. So says Rabbi Shlema Kluger, the place before the Jews were able to get the Torah was not some place where they did amazing. It's actually a place where they were very challenged, where they were doing wrong, they were being weak, they were not actively participating in the Torah as they were supposed to. And because of that, they, because of that, they got attacked. But because of that, they also realized, what have, what have I done? And that woke them up. And that gave them the impetus and the energy to push through and to fight for everything they wanted to become and everything they were going to be. And that's how they were able to get the Torah at the very next station. They were able to get the Torah because they were weak in that spot. It's exactly because you went through this challenge that you are now able to become greater than you've ever been before, which we call Yerida L'Tzorach Aliyah, which means falling down in order to get back up. The entire history of the world is built like this. The world is created first evening, first darkness, and then light. The Messianic, the Messiah, where does the Messiah come out of? It comes out of the Davidic line. The Davidic line is, is fraught with challenges. Starting back with Lot and his two daughters, who through an incestuous relationship, Produce Ammon and Moab. And of course, Ruth, the Moabite, who ends up becoming the great-grandmother of David. David himself. And Bathsheba, the stories that he goes through. These are not people whose stories are not complicated. Their stories are complex. They went through challenge. They went through chaos. They went, they stumbled, and they fell. But falling is not the end of the world. As a matter of fact, if you can get back up, you can get back, you can build back better. <laughs> you can build back better if you actually do it right. So, Rabbi Shlema Kluger says, the reason why the Jewish people were able to go to Mount Sinai 
and be of the singular mindset and be ready to just throw themselves at the Torah, Nasev and Ishma. You give us whatever you got, God. We're ready to do it. Was because they had fallen in the previous station and seen what it looks like to fall down and seen what they look like when they don't do the right thing. And they're able to look at themselves and say, I don't like myself like that. I don't like myself when I'm selfish. I don't like myself when I'm angry. And sometimes it takes a person just losing himself and seeing the results of what happens for them to finally wake up and say, I've got to get my life together. How many people take hitting rock bottom before they finally start taking their life seriously? They say something so offensive that they, they make somebody lose a job and now they can't believe, oh my gosh, what did I do? I, I made somebody lose a job. Okay, I, I need to start watching what I say. I, I, I can't go on like this. Being a sick gossip monger. I'm hurting people. Parents who so deeply hurt their relationship with their kids before they finally say, okay, I need to start working on my anger and how I talk with my children. I, I, it's not working trying to control them anymore. So many times in life, we go through challenges and we fall and we, get, and we get knocked down. But if we can come back up from that, we reach the highest level. Sheva, Yipo, Tzadik, become Seven times the Tzadik falls down, but he keeps getting back up and that's why he's so great. That's why he's the Tzadik. Because he's fallen and he knows the pain of the suffering and the being down there. He knows how deeply he doesn't like himself like that and how much he wants to be a better person. That's why before the Jewish people, the stop before Mount Sinai, the stop before the Jewish people's highest point is Rafidim, a low, low, low point. Okay, next idea. In this week's Torah portion, we have the Ten Commandments. And I want to talk for a moment about commandment number five. Commandment number five is Kabed es avicha vasimecha. You shall honor your mother and father. Lemaan yarichun yamecha in order that your days should be lengthened. Al haadama asher Hashem alokecha nosein lach on the land that Hashem is giving you. I want to talk about number one. I want to talk about in general about honoring parents. Today we live in a world where this is not always seen. And it's very much to the detriment of our society. We live in a society where people call their parents by their first name. I don't care if you're 60 years old and your mother is 90 years old. You don't call her Karen or Ellen or whatever else her name is or Edith. Not appropriate. We don't, we have respect for our parents. Now we have generations where young people. Parents are letting their kids call them by their first name, their own children. And it's causing such a breakdown. You know, in our house, I'll just tell you a little bit about our house. We have a, we have a pretty, it's a pretty, we have a healthy level, I believe, Baruch Hashem, of respect for the parents. Now, my entire life, I've never, ever, ever hit a child of mine, God forbid, and I, I don't remember raising my voice at, a, at any of my children. The only thing I can think of was like, if someone's about to do something dangerous, I'm like, stop! You know, because like, I'm, I'm afraid for them. 
But I don't raise my voice on my kids either. Baruch Hashem. But my children still respect me. And the reason why is because we demand respect in this household. We understand that when it, there's a time maybe when a kid is six years old, you know, and he says, you know, I hate you or whatever, that's fine, okay. You know, right away I, we tell our children, our job is not that you should love us. Our job is to bring you on the proper path in life. But if they say something offensive to a parent, like uh, you're, you're, you're so stupid or something like that, ho, ho, ho. Again, there's no yelling, there's no screaming. It's just a simple, excuse me? What did you say? No, no, no. That's not going to happen. We don't talk like that in this house. Ever. Ever. Do you understand me? That, now that's it. But if you demand respect, you'll get respect. And you start off right in the beginning of the relationship with your children, it becomes second nature. We live in a society where often parents don't demand respect from their children. And whatever it is that you tolerate, you're going to see more of. Again, it's not what you like that you'll see more of. It's what you tolerate in your relationships that you're going to see more of. If you let your kids say you're so stupid, then the next time they're going to say to you, you're this. And the next time, I, I, I've, watched, I've watched kids cursing out their parents. Calling their parents like, like words that... And I, I can't believe it. And the parents just take it. <laughs> stop calling me that, okay? That's, if, if that's all you do, stop calling me that. But you're kind, of, you're kind of tolerating it. Guess what? You're going to see a lot more of it. There needs to be in a home, for the healthiness of the home, a healthy respect for parents. And that means we don't call our parents by our first names. And that means that we don't allow even children to say no to a parent. Meaning... If I tell a child to go to their room and they say no, now when they're very young, I may have to walk them up to their room. But there's no question about it that if I tell a child to go to their room, they're not going to get out of it by just like ignoring me. And therefore, Baruch my kids don't ignore me. Whatever you tolerate, you will get. And if you don't demand respect as a parent, your children won't respect you. And then you've lost. See, the, the, the mitzvah of kabed esavicha vesimecha is actually, of honoring your parents, is incumbent upon the child. However, we have a mitzvah of chinuch. We have a mitzvah of educating our children. So if you want to educate your child properly, one of the greatest things that you can give him is a healthy respect for you. So, and, and, and children need that. They need to understand there's a hierarchy in this world. You, the parent, is more important than them, the child. Period. The end. They need to understand that. That they are not the center of the world. Because if they're led to believe that they're more important than the parent, the parent is a stand-in for God. The parent is a stand-in for the rest of society. You teach your children that they can walk all over you. They're going to try to walk over all of society. And there's going to be a lot of stumbling and mess-ups. And they're either going to be a bully, or they're going to allow for bullying to go on. So that's the first of the... Create an environment where there is respect in your home for your parents. If you still have children who are younger, do not allow them to call you by your first name. Do not allow them to speak disrespectfully to you. Now, of course, if it's already been going on for years, that's a good question. 
How do you deal with it when it's already been going on for years? And part of it is going to be a real conversation that you have to have with your children, where you're frank with them and you say, look, I think we've been doing this wrong. This parent relationship with this child is, you know, you got to have a conversation with them and say, look, we've been doing it wrong. We're going to switch it up now. There's going to be a change in the relationship right now. I'm sorry if as a parent we didn't demand respect, which gave you a sense of you don't even know. Children, by the way, they crave, children crave a sense of structure in their lives. When there's no sense of structure, they're constantly faced with the task of triggering and trying and testing. If they know where the boundaries are, they're much more safe and much more comfortable. So we have to create a situation where kibbutz of the aim, where respect for elders is paramount. In our house, we have a custom that when we have guests over for Shabbos, and a lot of times, especially Friday night, we'll have a full table. Uh, two weeks ago, we had, I believe it was 12 or 13 guests Friday night. Beautiful, beautiful meal. Now, my wife, especially when we have lots and lots of guests, she works so hard. I mean, she's cooking for hours and hours and hours on Thursday night, usually. She'll cook from, from I don't know, 9 or 10 p.m. all the way till 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I'll, I'll usually get the kids off to school in the morning on Friday morning, and she'll get up late usually, maybe 10 or 11. Then she goes right back into the kitchen, and she's cooking and cooking, and she puts out such an incredible spread, and she works so hard. Now, usually when we come to the table, the first course is already on the table. It's already out, right? So like the fish course, the fish and the dips and the salads and all that, it's already out on the table. But after that's done, when we have a lot of guests over, I make an announcement. I say the custom in this house is that the men are now going to get up, We're going to clear the whole table of all the fish and all the salads and all the dips and everything. We're going to go into the kitchen and we're going to serve the women their soup. And I assign people. I tell this guy, you know, I say, you're in charge of serving your wife and you're in charge of serving this one. I basically give the various men around the table the job of finding out what the women want in their soup because we have chicken soup. Sometimes we have a lot of guests. We usually have a chicken soup and a vegan option. Um, and the chicken soup, what, what, what do you want? you want broth? Do you want canadol, you know, matzo balls? Do you want chicken? Do you want vegetables? Do you want everything? Do you want all vegetables except for tomatoes? Sometimes we put tomatoes in. Do you want all vegetables except for carrots or celery or onions or whatever? whatever. We want to be able to give you your custom bespoke chicken soup bowl. Right? Isn't that amazing? Come to the Burnham's house for Shabbos and you'll get a bespoke chicken soup bowl. <laughs> custom made just for you. So we then get up, and it's actually beautiful. We bring out lechaims. We make we'll make usually a, like a nice creamy cocktail for the ladies, a mocha dreamy creamy or a creamy flapjack or whatever. And the men will often have a lechaim in the kitchen, and it's, it gives them time. The women hang around the, the, the dining room table. They sit, they schmooze, they talk. It's kashmak. It's nice. And the men they have some a little man time, and we we clear the whole table and we we serve them their soup, and then we go out ourselves. We serve ourselves our soup, and then we go outside and we continue the meal. Now the second course, usually, sorry, the third course, the, the, the main course, the women do go back and serve that. I don't, you know, it's a lot of complications there. You, know, like, <laughs> you can give me very basic instructions, you know. You know, I got to take the soup and serve the soup. I can do that. But like, you got to figure out where this one comes. This side dish goes with this one. And there's like oh, the meats and cutting it up. It's a little bit too much for my pay grade. So usually the, the next course, the, the women usually will serve, you know. Or, now, that's great. When we have no guests, who do you think serves the chicken soup? My wife and I stay seated, and our kids get up and clear and serve us the chicken soup. 
which is the appropriate way, right? It's not like daddy's going to... My, my, my oldest kids are, are girls. My first four are girls. One's in Israel right now in Israel in seminary. But it's not like, okay, now daddy's going to serve all the women. No. When it's just the parents and our, our nuclear family, the parents are going to stay seated. Mommy worked hard all night last night, all day today, making this amazing Shabbos meal. We're going to stay seated, and you kids are going to get up and clear the table and serve the parents. That's appropriate. That's right. It's important that you have a sense of honor and respect for parents in your home. Another example. Sitting. Now, there's a concept that you're not supposed to sit in your father's seat. Now, we have a kitchen table, and we have a dining room table. The dining room table, of course, is more formal. So we eat our Shabbos meals and so on and so forth. The kitchen table, it's often crowded, and it's, it's a little bit more complicated. When I sit down at the dinner table, I have the same seat usually, but I'm not makbid, which means I, there's a concept that it's called uh, a, a father, av shamachal kvoto kvoto machal. If a father wants to forgive somebody and say, it's okay, you don't have to show me this level of honor, a father's allowed to do that. So when it comes to my seat at the dinner table, at the kitchen table, I'm like, okay, I, the kids can sit in my seat. It's not a big deal. We don't have a lot of seats. And sometimes the seats are behind the table. It's harder to get to. You can use my seat. But, but at the dining room table, they're not allowed to sit in my seat. And they know that. And again, that's appropriate. That's good. We're teaching the children. There's a certain level of respect. And we live in a world where we're supposed to like break down all boundaries. And anything where you're supposed to show any kind of deference is like, oh, I should respect that. And who says you're better than me? And it's, I'm your parent. I brought you into the world. My wife and I are taking care of everything that you need. Yeah, it's important that you know how to show respect. And of course, that one of the luchos, there's two luchos, right? There's luchos, tablet number one and tablet number two. Tablet number one is, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Don't have other gods. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Shabbos day and honor your parents. The second one is don't kill. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, and don't covet. So usually we say this is all between, the second tablet is all laws between man and fellow man. The first tablet is laws between man and God. What about honoring your parents? Honoring your parents is a model that will help you understand how to honor God. If you don't have a situation where there's a sense of respect and awe for those greater than you, because you don't create that system within your home, they're not going to have to have the proper respect for God either. So it's really, really important. And one last final idea, Rav Sadia Gon, who was amazing, he lived in the time of Gaonim, so he lived well over a thousand years ago. He says, why is the reward for honoring your parents a long life? Listen to this amazing psychological idea that he shows. He was so clearly way above, his, you know, way above the, the world of psychology, which later would come to recognize this. He says... If you honor your parents, you'll give them long life. Because when you're constantly showing your parents how much you love them and how much you appreciate them, you will give them long life because they'll feel fulfilled in life. They'll feel like they did, it, did something right in life. They made a, a difference in the world. They'll feel good about themselves. And because they'll feel good about themselves, they'll live longer. And therefore, the reward is that you'll live longer because when your children see how much deference and respect you show to your parents and how much love you give them and how much you care about them and show them your respect for them, They'll do the same to you, and then you'll live longer too, because you'll feel like you made a meaningful difference in the world. And that will give you the ability to live longer too. So I just thought it was like an amazing psychological insight from Rafsad Yagon, a Gon who lived over a thousand years ago, but it's more of like a, a psychological insight. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, for listening so beautifully, and have a wonderful Shabbos. And remember that you are indeed awesome in the eyes of the Lord. 
Have a good Shabbos. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.